The reading this morning can be found on page 1192 of the Church Bibles, and it's taken from the letter of Paul to Timothy, chapter 2, verses 1 to 8. I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Saviour, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. And for this purpose I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, and a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles. I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer, without anger or disputing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. As we said... Oh dear. Turn it down a bit. As we said, let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, please speak to us through your word this morning. Open our hearts to receive, our minds to understand, and bend our wills to obey your word. For your namesake, amen. It's lovely to have a baptism this morning. You never quite know these days what's going to happen at a baptism. In the church I was working in in London before coming to Oxford, we had a slightly mad couple. He was the younger son of an Irish peer and really as mad as a hatter. She wasn't much better, but they were a delightful family and they were having one of the children baptised. And they asked me if they could... They'd been to the, the Holy Land and had brought back some water from the River Jordan, and could they use this for the baptism? I said, yes, that was fine. Well, the day came, and of course it was time for the service to start, and they hadn't turned up, and I hung on as long as I possibly could, but they still hadn't turned up, so we started the service, and we sang the first hymn, and then they arrived, so the congregation sat down, and she came in with this uh, water from the River Jordan, walked right up to the front where the font was, in front of the whole congregation, and she'd brought it to church in a gin bottle, so she proceeded to empty this gin bottle into the font. It's being baptized in the spirit. Now, James and Amelia, you'll be pleased to know that I've cut the reading short. Not promising the sermon. Actually, the sermon will have to be cut short, I think. Uh, I'll explain that when, when we, we get into it a bit. In his uh, commentary, little commentary on uh, 1 Timothy... John Stott describes a visit to a local church. He writes, The pastor was absent on holiday, and a lay elder led the prayers. He prayed that the pastor might enjoy a good vacation, and that two lady members of the congregation might be healed. But that was all. The intercession can hardly have lasted 30 seconds. I came away saddened, sensing that this was a church worshipping a little village god of their own devising. There was no recognition of the needs of the world and no attempt to embrace the world in prayer. Uh, We've come to the end of a series of sermons on various aspects of prayer, and we're thinking today about praying for the world. It's very much the theme of the passage that 
Robert read, praying for all the world. Verse 1, we are to pray for all the world, my loose translation of the word everyone, for three reasons. First, verse 4, God wants all the world to be saved. Secondly, verse 6, Christ Jesus died to save all the world. And verse 7, the gospel, the Christian message, is for all the world. Now, what I was planning to do was to consider the reasons and then come back to the exhortation to pray for all the world. I don't think I'm going to have time to come back to that exhortation, so you'll have to get the tape from the 11.15 sermon. But let's consider the three reasons why we are to pray for all the world. First, because God wants all the world to be saved, verse 4. I mean, it couldn't be clearer, could it? This is good, praying for everyone is good, and pleases God our Saviour, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And this truth that God wants all the world to be saved is something that is mentioned several times in the New Testament. The reason for this is verse 5. For there is one God. There is only one God. Now if there is only one God, then obviously he is the God of all. It's not that we have the Christian God here in the West and different gods in other parts of the world. If there is only one God, then he must be God of all. If there were many gods, as the Greeks and the Romans thought, then there might be some system of allocation. Well, you can have this bit of the world and you can have that bit and we'll give him that bit. A sort of divine Yalta conference, dividing the world up. But there is only one God and he is therefore God of all, of all nations, of all peoples. And this one God is the God who saves 2 Peter puts it very strikingly, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He wants all men to have eternal life. He is the God who saves, and it follows then that he desires all men to be saved, not just a few, not just an elite. He desires all men to be saved. Now, I said this mentioned several times in the New Testament, Strikingly, it's an idea that you find in the Old Testament as well. It might be thought to be slightly surprising to find it in the Old Testament because the Old Testament has this strong idea that Israel is the chosen people, God's elect nation, specially chosen from all the nations of the world. And that might lead to an exclusivism. And indeed, in the day of Jesus, it had led to an exclusivism. God is our God. He saved us. And he's not interested in anybody else. But Israel was chosen so that the nations might be blessed. So that God's purposes of salvation might come to all the world. Israel wasn't God's special people for her own sake, but for the sake of all people. So, for example, you find in Isaiah 45 and verse 22, God speaking and he says, Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Same idea again. The God of Israel is the only God, and he is a saviour God. Therefore, he is the saviour of all the world. God wants all men to be saved. Secondly, Christ Jesus died for all the world. Verse 6. Christ Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all men. 
Again, the logic for this is in verse 5. There is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. There is only one mediator between God and men, therefore he must be the mediator for all men. Now, of course, this raises the question, why only one? Granted that there is one God, why might there not be many different ways to God? Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except through me. But in our pluralistic age, that sounds, well, we just can't accept that. Why should there not be many ways? Why shouldn't Buddhism be the way for some people, or Hinduism, or some other religion? Isn't this an arrogant and exclusive claim to say that there is only one mediator? Now, it must be said straight away that in saying that Christ is the only mediator, we are not making an exclusive claim for the church. We are not making an exclusive claim even for Christianity as an organized religion. We're not saying that we've got it all and nobody else has. It is a claim for Jesus Christ. It's not that we are in some way special, but that Jesus is unique. And he is unique in two ways. First, he is unique in who he is. Paul describes him here as the man, Christ Jesus. And it's important that Jesus was a man, a real human being, because he is therefore able to be our representative. He is able to act for us, on our behalf, in our stead. He had to become a man in order to be able to do that. But he is not just a man, he is also divine. Flick over a few pages to Titus. Titus chapter 2 and verse 13. You sometimes hear it said that the New Testament never actually calls Jesus God. But look at this verse, Titus chapter 2 verse 13. We wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and so on. This man is also... God, our great God and Saviour, come to earth in order to give himself. As Dorothy Sayers puts it, Jesus Christ is unique, unique among gods and men. He is the only God who has a date in history. Founders of religions had dates, but only this one of them was personally God. So that is part of his uniqueness, who he is a man who is God. But he's also unique in what he did. He gave himself, our text says, as a ransom for all men. Now the language here of giving himself is a typical New Testament way of referring to the death of Christ. Christ died as a ransom. I think we're all familiar with the idea of a ransom. A price paid to set free. When Christ died on the cross, it was like a ransom price being paid to set us free, free from sin and its consequences. And because of who he is, it was a ransom big enough for all the world. No one else could have done it, because no one else is a man who is God. As the old hymn puts it, there was no other good enough to pay the price of sin 
He only could unlock the gate of heaven and let us in. And we might add to that, only Jesus rose from the dead. The reason that there is only one mediator is because there is only one person who is alive to mediate between us and God. Jesus, who rose from the dead. Now, if he is the only mediator between God and men, then he must be the mediator for all the world, since God desires all the world to be saved. Now, thirdly, the gospel is for all the world, verse 7. Paul is referring here to his own commission as an apostle. You remember that the risen Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus, and specially commissioned him to take the gospel, as he says here, to the Gentiles. Now, Gentiles simply means nations. The Gentiles are all the nations other than Israel. And therefore, Gentiles refers to all the nations, without exception. Since God wants all men to be saved, and since Christ died to redeem all men, it follows that the message of salvation is intended for all men. And this brings us back to the exhortation to pray for all the world. Paul says, first of all, I urge, first of all, first in importance, not in sequence. This isn't the first in a list of instructions. Paul is saying this is most important of all. First of all, I urge that requests, prayers, intercession and thanksgiving be made for everyone, everyone in all the world, especially for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. We are to pray for all the world. Now, it's striking that Paul says to pray for kings and all those in authority. When Paul wrote this, the emperor was Nero. In the Book of Common Prayer, we pray for Christian kings, princes, and governors. Uh, Nero was hardly that. One of the worst emperors who ever ruled, and particularly cruel and vicious in his persecution of Christians. And yet Paul says, pray for kings and rulers and all in authority, even if it's someone like Nero. And the reason for this, I think, is because, as Tim Chester puts it, Rulers and authorities have it within their power to create a context in which the gospel can be both proclaimed freely and demonstrated openly in godly and holy lives. Freedom from peace makes it easier to preach the gospel. Freedom from persecution makes it easier to preach the gospel. Freedom from crime and strife and civil disorder makes it easier to preach the gospel. And the great concern is for all men to be saved. In Jeremiah 29, verse 7, God urges his people to pray for the peace and prosperity of Babylon. It is very striking instruction because God's people have been taken away into exile into Babylon. Babylon is the great enemy of God and his people. And yet God says, pray for the peace and prosperity of Babylon. And I wonder if today we pray for the peace and prosperity of Riyadh, of Kabul and Beijing, of Tehran and Hanoi, Vientiane or Pyongyang or Khartoum or Mogadishu. There is a great challenge here 
for us to pray for the world and not to be focused on ourselves and our church. John Stock quotes the Grand Rapids report on evangelism and social responsibility. We resolve and call upon our churches to take much more seriously the period of intercession in public worship. To think in terms of 10 or 15 minutes rather than 5. To invite lay people to share in leading since they often have deep insight into the world's needs. And to focus our prayers both on the evangelization of the world and on the quest for peace and justice in the world. And John Stott himself adds the comment, I sometimes wonder whether the comparatively slow progress towards peace and justice in the world and towards world evangelization is due more than anything else to the prayerlessness of the people of God. In our prayers, do we pray for all the world? Is that our concern? Let's pray now. Almighty God, your love extends to all that you have created and your interest in concern is for the peoples of all the nations. Teach us then to have a vision for all the world, to have a concern for all people, to pray not only for our own needs, our own home, our own country. Teach us to pray for all men everywhere. For this is good and pleases you. Amen. So let's uh, sing of God's compassion for all nations and all creation as we stand to sing filled with compassion for all creation. <laughs>